Welcome into the show. It is Daniel Wortman coming to you live from the Dreamaginate Sports Studios. It is 9 a.m. on the East Coast, 6 a.m. out west in all time zones in between and around the world. Thanks for tuning in. As always, we appreciate it. Um, I can tell you that uh, people are paying attention to what's going on here in America when it comes to American soccer. And uh, I've known this for a long time. I've had enough conversations with people in and around the game that uh, always leaves me with a sense of hope that somehow, some way, at some point, we'll get it right. We'll get it fixed. We'll get it um, set up properly. We will do things the right way. Uh, but I, I just want to say over these last few weeks, um, it has been remarkable how much people have engaged in the conversation. I am constantly getting messages on a daily basis from viewers and listeners, uh, friends, it just consistently telling their stories and, and sharing their insights and uh, their experiences, your experiences. And it's been incredible. Yesterday, um, I, I received a an email. And typically, when we get an email to the show, it, it's, you know, it's, hey, man, I love, I love what you're doing. I, I, I enjoy the content. Uh, curious, I may have a question. You know, but it's, it's not very long. I mean, you know, it's maybe a paragraph to five, six sentences. Not a big deal. Yesterday, we got a three page email and uh, you can see it. I mean, it's it's long. Right. And and I read through the entire email and and I was like, uh, these are a lot of really good points in 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 the person who who asked to be kept anonymous um shared some you know personal insights to um what they've experienced with the development academy and w- some of their uh, observances with the system and uh and and so i i reached out to this individual and just said, Hey, do you mind if we kind of share some of this, uh, on the show? Could we kind of go through some of the things you said in the letter on the show? You know, we're more than happy to, to, you know, uh, protect, protect your identity because I, I know that, uh, in, in American soccer, the unfortunate reality is a lot of people are concerned about speaking up and speaking out and, and the ramifications on their, on their kids or on their own job prospects, uh, prospects, et cetera. So, uh, I wanted to be sensitive to that and, and we certainly did. So, uh, they gave us approval to, to do it, uh, keep them anonymous and, 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 and I'm going to get to it in just a minute, but before I do, I, I just want to, uh, um, start the show with this premise today. And that, and that premise is this. The United States Soccer Federation should be a federation for everyone. It should be engaged with the entire American soccer ecosystem. When we look at the U.S. Soccer Federation, 
They just don't do the Federation thing very well. The Development Academy decision came out of the blue in terms of the timing, in terms of feedback with the the club, the affected clubs, feedback from the American soccer uh, family at large, silence. It was a decision that came, you know, with with, with no public Q&A, no back and forth. There's been a lot of money that, have, that has been put into the Development Academy system for all of its warts and ugly pieces and, and, and things that we've talked about on this show that we don't like about the Development Academy. You still owed those invested in the project a conversation before you shut it down. That's just decency. It's good leadership. That's a good federation. We just, we don't see that from the organization. And it's, it's infuriating. It's frustrating. It's maddening. It's any, any sort of descriptive words you want to use. And it's a head scratcher. Why do we do this? Why does this continually happen in American soccer? The federation is, is committed to the 1% at a federation level. And they have outsourced all of their responsibilities, all of their obligations and duties, according to their own bylaws that they're responsible for. They have outsourced those to other organizations. Their sole focus has been on the 1%. We're not going to grow the game across this country when we don't engage with communities across the country. Who's to say that Chattanooga or Knoxville or Nashville, Tennessee, Memphis, who's to say any one or all four could support one or multiple teams in each city? Quality teams, high-level teams. We don't know. But I'd love to find out. And I'm sure those cities would as well. Until we connect every single place in this country, every single person in this country, every single organization in this country, we can't say we're trying to do what's best for the country. Limited access, gatekeepers, arbitrary timelines and decisions, operating with silos, separation, segmentation, operating in a vacuum, closed off to the world around you, not listening to the stakeholders. All of these things are keeping American soccer from reaching its potential. It's not propelling it forward. We need a federation that starts to get do, to do good, to be good at being a federation. This email that I got uh, yesterday was, was uh, I, I felt was 
some really good comments about their own experiences, but also some of their observations. I said, hi, Daniel, I I appreciate your comprehensive coverage of the U.S. Soccer Federation's decision to shutter the D.A. My son plays, or as of this moment, played for a non-MLS academy. Although we heard grumbling for a while, the way they delivered the message was obviously discomforting, if not somewhat appropriate, inappropriate, given our experience excuse me, if not somewhat appropriate given our experience, meaning this is status quo. This is the way the Federation does what they do. People are are used to this type of dysfunction. Below are a couple general observations I'd like to share with you. Hope this adds some flavor to the soup in the pot you've been stirring. And and, and on that note, the, the pot that I'm stirring... It is always from a place of how do we get better? How do we reach and strive as a country for excellence? We have been historically a country that sets trends, that that does things that no other country has done. This has been our MO in the past. We may not be great at it at the moment in in certain areas of our daily lives, but it has been historically an American experience to strive, to dream, to build things and do incredible things. We've seen companies like Apple and Disney, Google and Facebook, Ford, company after company, Idea after idea, Edison, Einstein, all of these great people of the past who have have been dreamers and built dreams. That's, That's America. And that's who we can be in American soccer. Tub thumping. The DA gets... Knocked down, but won't get up again. Pardon the pun. In many ways, the U.S. Soccer Federation ran the DA like a mediocre tech startup. It began with a vision and strong ideology, i.e. identify the top American soccer talent, create a competitive environment for those players to grow in, harness that talent to accelerate the U.S. national team's presence in the world game. But like many failed startups, the ambition fell way short of the implementation. In particular, the organization pivoted quite frequently and often took unexplained detours that led further and further astray from their original intent. The common theme pervading many of those redirections was the the desire to replicate the success of other nations while blindly ignoring the clear benefits of the American populace. A large, diverse, and industrious community with a passion for exceptionalism. Rather than tap directly into that rock and roll zeitgeist, they attempted to string together a greatest hits of European style and strategy. Ultimately, they were complacent to to be a high-functioning cover band. So it's no surprise we didn't get Zeppelin. We got Chumbawamba. Rest in peace, the U.S. Soccer Development Academy. One note that I want to add to 
um, this part of the message when it when they they laid out the the common theme here of looking to Europe and and ignoring the clear benefits of the American populace. There are a lot of people that that think that we have to copy Europe to do soccer well. And I disagree with that notion. We don't need to copy Europe to do it well here. But we should learn lessons, best practices. And one of those best practices that that we need to do is is fully embrace opportunity and access. For coaching courses, opportunity and access. For players and coaches and scouts, clubs, based on on-field performance. Are you getting the job done on the field? Is your team developing players? Is your team winning? That should be entry into the next round. Not who you know. Not how much you're worth. Or how much you've paid to gain access. It should be based on what you do, sporting merit. So that piece we can learn from the rest of the world. And it should be implemented here. Because that is actually part of the American fabric. Opportunity and access. That was the the core piece of the story. We should have open markets in all of our sports, not just soccer. But I agree with this uh, viewer that sent the email in talking about tapping into our large, diverse, and industrious community with a passion for exceptionalism. We don't do that right now. The Federation is not reaching out to the best minds. They're not trying to get things opened up in all 50 states, get things connected in all 50 states. They're not working feverishly to take the number of professional clubs in this country and triple or quadruple or 10x across the country, but they should be. They should be trying to support that kind of growth. After all, that's what they state their mission is to make soccer in all of its preeminent for, uh, forms. Grow the sport in all of its forms. Self-centers. My son was fortunate enough to be invited to a to around a handful of U.S. soccer training centers. I don't know why I still capitalize this, uh, knowing they um, likely carry little value. Occurring three to five times a year, they they were mainly uh, they would mainly be run by a, a rotary of local college coaches. Although my son did notice a few fil- familiar faces each time, the structure was rather underwhelming. A short warm up, maybe some small sided games, or rondo finishing with a scrimmage. Sometimes they skip most of the formalities and jump quickly into eleven v eleven. Not that I fault them for that, since it felt like the intent of the training center was less an introduction to U.S. soccer and more a stage two vetting of the potential player pool. 
One may also assume this was more of a function of U.S. soccer budgeting than a disinterest from that age group's U.S. soccer coaching staff. Parents were strictly forbidden from watching. Even DA coaches were told to scram. However, most most of us lingered and remained silent observers, not out of defiance, but more about the lack of dining and shopping options around a suburban office park after dark. Although he was invited to every training center, the Federation never provided any feedback. If my son was 40 out of 40 on the depth chart, I understand his national team potential was likely subfractional. But there was a reason he and the others were chosen. There was something worthwhile exploring in these players, many who were asked back as frequently as my son. It seemed like a missed opportunity to engage this group, more than half of them from non-MLS clubs, and possibly challenge them to show progress. If they felt this way toward this tier of players, I have to imagine their attitude toward the remaining were as dismal. If, in my case, my comment is definitely more dismal just as an example of the way uh, the relationship U.S. soccer had with its participants we wish but but know that the U.S. soccer federation isn't spoiled with a backfield full of Van Dykes or a succession of Iniestas to choose indiscriminately from so I never understood why they wouldn't do more with the wider net they cast And now, with no apparent future plans to run training centers beyond the MLS clubs, U.S. soccer seems to have completely excommunicated a large portion of their former player pool. I have to think these moves are driven driven by incompetency rather than purposeful callousness. By a small group that is myopically zoned in on their singular target, a highly competitive first team. Their peripheral vision artificially limited electing to fixate their eyeline on the MLS as the panacea, the 1% over everyone else. All the huffing and puffing blew it. The problem with U.S. soccer putting all their eggs in the MLS Academy basket is that it just doubles down on a system that will not produce the quality of players to compete on the global level. The MLS Academy structure is equivalent to the European and South American systems only in name. All professional academies provide free training for for players, but in reality, that's the smallest of the financial incentives when compared to in in the winning lottery ticket that is a professional contract. Unfortunately, MLS contracts pay out more like the jackpots on scratch tickets than Powerball. Many young players make the league minimum, 48,000. So then why do some parents drive their kids two plus hours each way, four days a week to participate on an MLS Academy? It's simple. There is something more valuable to American players and their parents access to top U.S. universities. Not only is a scholarship worth as much or more than a one-year contract, granted very few kids get full rides, but more importantly, it comes with a promise of a future income in perpetuity. If you peruse the roster of the Division I soccer programs in the U.S., it shouldn't surprise anyone that the majority of these rosters are filled with MLS Academy players, as well as former Academy players from prestigious foreign clubs. There is a difference, however, between these two groups. American players are using Academy 
as using the academy as a foot in the door scholarships financial aid to complement a borderline gpa at the best colleges in the country in contrast foreign players are using degrees from american universities as the fallback to an unsuccessful run at a pro career so herein lies the flaw in the source code of u.s soccer structure mls academy soccer is a player's best path to college soccer and college soccer will most likely inhibit or atrophy our top players' development. In Europe and South America, superstars are made in those key initial years of adulthood. Our system drives the pull of potential first-team players away from the global game and towards an Americanized replica synonymous with obligatory physical and direct play, unlimited substitutions, massive rosters, and a sacrilegious clock counting down. You have to, you have to step back for a minute and see the pure irony in all of this. Teenage soccer players were thoroughly scolded for the thought of wanting to play soccer on high school teams with their close friends. The DA huffed and puffed that the drop in the level of play from that two-month high school season would drag the quality of soccer down dramatically. The MLS clubs huffed and puffed that the drop in the level of play in the DA from having to compete with local non-MLS academies was unacceptable. Enough huffing and puffing blew the house down, leaving only the poured cement edifices of MLS academies to remain. Because of COVID-19, but not really, U.S. soccer cut their expenses and outsourced top youth development to the MLS. But that just locks the Federation into a loveless, arranged marriage, doomed empty nest syndrome as their most talented continues to pack up and head to college. This relationship smacks more of submissiveness than a partnership, and given their lack of a formal plan beyond the dissolvement of the DA, will likely only paint the current U.S. Soccer Federation leadership into a corner. The Federation needs the MLS way more than the MLS needs the Federation. For the rest of us, the death of U.S. Soccer's DA program may be a blessing in disguise. Spurn clubs will regroup, realign, and reinforce their foundations away from the huffing and puffing. With the burden of U.S. soccer's international success resting on the shoulders of the self-isolated federation, the clubs have the freedom to succeed in continuity and creativity as opposed to being bequeathed the right by a higher, higher power. Spurned players will have options, possibly finding a synergy at the club in high school, With the recent news, it certainly feels like soccer in the U.S. has taken a few steps backwards. But shifting formations into a defense defense posture is often tactically important. Let's hope the grassroots side of the sport, which drove its popularity, can team tackle this and retake possession. Thanks for taking the time to listen to my views. Keep fighting the good fight. A viewer of the show. Great ideas and great thoughts. And I appreciate those. And I agree with with much of what this viewer had to say. Our federation owes it to this country to lead well. It's in their very paperwork, their bylaws, and in their own mission statement. That they are to grow the game in all its forms for all Americans. And it's time they begin 
to fulfill that obligation. Our sponsor this half hour is Ductic Brand, D-U-K-T-I-G brand.com. If you go there today and you find like some really cool apparel or some of those flashcards that like already have the field printed on them, go on and go on and place an order, get them in. You're, you're going to be glad you did. And when you do use promo code DW show, you'll get 10% off of that order. Again, that's DW show and you'll get 10% off of the order at ductigbrand.com. Coming up right after the break, we have the very first interview with uh, the new club joining NISA uh, out of New York, new Amsterdam Football Club. Look forward to bringing that to you. Max Mansfield, the sporting director of New Amsterdam Football Club, coming up right after this. like to welcome in uh, Max Mansfield. He's the sporting director of New Amsterdam Football Club based in uh, New York, a new club to that's coming into Nisa. And uh, Max, welcome into the show. Thanks for uh, spending some time uh, with us uh, in the midst of all this pandemic and crisis to be able to kind of spend a few minutes and, uh, you know, pick your brain and, and get your thoughts on the new project, the club, etc. R- really appreciate you spending some time with us. For sure, yeah, glad to be here. You're actually our, uh, you're our first podcast, so. Uh, well, we're we're excited to have you. Cool, very. Cool. And 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 really glad you're able to to get on. Um, tell us a little bit about the project, New Amsterdam Football Club. You know exactly where is the club uh, going to to kind of base out of, and 
and, and give us a little bit of the origin story of the project. Yeah. Um, so New Amsterdam Football Club was started uh, by myself and Lauren Gerard. Uh, he is the president and founder of the club, and he runs a successful health tech startup called Fruit Street Health. Um, they're actually doing some pretty cool um, COVID-19 stuff. Um, so he's crazy busy. He's actually having me doing night shifts there as well. So I've been pretty busy as well. Um, but New Amsterdam Football Club, we started it together as a joint venture. Uh, him and I met a few years back through the kind of New York City soccer community. Uh, he was kind of just starting his health tech startup. And I was founding my consulting group called The Foosball Project, uh, where we kind of took it upon ourselves to help overlooked uh, U.S. talents, uh, both on the youth and men's side, transition over to uh, pro clubs in Europe and semi-pro clubs in Europe. So him and I connected um, about three years ago, three, four years ago. Um, he's a native New York. We actually played together at youth level. We only found that out later. Um, but we connected and we had this sort of vision to help out, uh, you know, emerging U.S. talents. And last year, actually, we went over to England together. We moved to London, him and I, and uh, we were heavily involved with a lower tier club there where we tried to put this principle into play. Um, but we were met with a lot of restriction um, in the kind of system there in the, in the infrastructure of the game to bringing over U.S. players. Uh, so when NISA kind of presented us with the opportunity to apply a similar, you know, blueprint. We just, you know, we took it and ran with it and here we are. So in terms of the, the blueprint, can you give us, I mean, I, you know, if you, if you got some secret sauce, I totally get it. But w overall kind of the big, big idea, what is the blueprint of new Amsterdam football club? I would say that there's, it's twofold. Uh, on one hand, we firmly believe that, there is a ton of untapped talent, you know, in our backyard in New York, in New Jersey, all across America. We think there's just guys that have fallen through the cracks for whatever reason. They didn't play at the right club. Maybe their parents couldn't afford it, um, but they still have the ability to play at a high level. And with my consulting group that we started, we saw that guys that were, you know, no-name players in America could go over to Europe and make a name for themselves. And you know, once you strip away, you know, looking at just the bios of players and, and, and evaluating them based off what they can do, you know, on the field, you enter a whole different ballgame. So I would say that's one side of it. Um, then the other side is that New Amsterdam is heavily involved in moving players on, right? I, I do believe, you know, Nisa will grow. I, I firmly believe we both do in their mission. Um, but with that said, we also want to move players on to Europe. We don't necessarily want, you know, a 17 year old kid for, you know, that signs a contract with us that, you know, New Amsterdam is their first and last destination in, in pro football. We want to nurture them. We want to get them pro games and then move them onwards. That's, you know, that's the, the fundamental principle. In terms of looking at NISA, uh, what excites you about that ability to, bring in that undiscovered untapped talent in, in being able to move them on. I mean, a lot of people talk about, you know, this, uh, these giant gaping holes in the American soccer system. We talk about it regularly on, on this show. Um, 
but in terms of putting that into practice, you know, actually doing it, following it through, bringing it in, what excite, excites you about finding that undiscovered talent? Where does that motivation come from for you? Uh, I think growing up as a player in the States myself, um, I saw players around me that maybe didn't have the opportunity to go to Europe the way I did, that were maybe more, more talented than I am or was. Um, and just to see that and to understand that, you know, to see both sides of how, you know, Europe lives and how America lives in terms of football, I, you know, I just immediately, I, I knew I wanted to give back to the game in the sense that, you know, offering a, an outlet or a pathway for U.S. players to, you know, make a name for themselves, get some pro games, get some experience, right, that they can't get otherwise because they have to choose, you know, college or club and then move them onwards. And I think, you know, 98% of 18-year-old, 17-year-old American players are not ready to play at a pro level in Europe. They aren't. But that's not to say that with a year or two, maybe three years of, you know, good development after the U17, U18, you know, formerly DA window, if they get that, that experience and that training, I think they can make the jump. I think it's very possible. When you look at the American market um, and you compare it to, let's say, the European markets uh, and the different leagues, uh, countries, Germany, the Netherlands, uh, Italy, Spain, England, France, some of these well-known uh, leagues, and they're known for, for different, you know, different leagues are known for different things, but we all know that their standards generally are above the American standard. I've, all, I've often thought uh, about the, the aspect of some of what you're talking about as an opportunity for the U.S., at least uh, at this point in our history, th these pro clubs to do what you're talking about, which is to take these 16, 17, 18-year-olds and rather than playing them in a you know, sheltered DA environment with you know, U-17s or U-19s, you know, those, you know, who are ready and able, who, who can kind of, you know, show that they, they're capable of, obviously not every 16, 17 year old is able to, but there are enough, it's a big country, to find enough players that could, uh, you know, begin to develop in a more professional environment that includes maybe some first team opportunities in a league like NISA, um, you know, is that something that is, is going to be a, a priority for you guys, that these young bloods that you find get integrated into, you know, on the field in, in NISA, as well as just, you know, training with the club? 100%. Um, 100%. I mean, I think the first thing we just, when we started New Amsterdam was having a youth academy. And I think that's something we want to implement. If it's not our own in-house one, it's, you know, creating those ties. And I think that's a big issue in America is that there are no ties, right? There's a ton of NPSL, PDL clubs, right? And they're tied maybe to colleges a bit, but there's, there's not a lot of direct ties to the U19 of that youth club. And I think that is where the complacency comes in, in the development, right? If I'm, you know, a U17 player on my academy and I'm the best player on my academy, right? what does that mean? I can get complacent. If I'm succeeding at that level, then what's my motivation to continue, right? 
Whereas if in Europe, if I'm the best player at 17, I'm going up to the first team. And I could go up to train twice and get the shit kicked out of me, but then I come back to my team and I'm like, I have work to do, right? And I, and I think that's the biggest mindset gap that we're kind of failing our U.S. players is that they have this complacency element. Like maybe I can rely on my left foot and only my left foot because I can score 20 goals at my DA level. But is that really going to carry me to the next level? And by the time I'm addressing those, those things I need to work on, I may be 18 or 19 because that's the first time in my life I played against grown men, right? So I only got exposed at 19 and my development cycle is already, you know, 50% of the way done. So that I think is something we are trying to definitely do. Um, take a 17-year-old kid, take an 18-year-old kid and throw him into ice cold water, throw him into a game that he may not be mentally prepared for, but then you see the sink and swim, right? Maybe they can handle it and we're all shocked. It happens all the time. You look at Schalke, all their best players, they, Leroy Sané, they threw him in against Real Madrid in the Champions League. The guy wasn't mentally prepared for that, but he goes in and he scores a banger and his you know, market value increases to, what, 30, 40 million overnight. It's like nobody knew that. People knew he was a talent, but you can only put them in those uncomfortable situations and see how they react. And if they fail, they go back for three months to the youth academy and then they can come back again. It's not the end of the world, but at least they made that mental experience like, hey, you know, I'm 16, I'm not the man. I'm not the best player out there. There is something bigger that sets out there, and I need to work to that. So I think yeah, that's the question we're answering. Yeah, I agree. And, and I think, you know, there's a, there's a little bit of a myth in terms of football clubs. A lot of people will classify them in a very black and white uh, manner. Like you're a development club, you're, you know, you're a, a, a veteran-laden club or a seasoned club or a club that's competing for championships. I think Liverpool has been a club recently that's shown they're willing to bring in and kind of, you know, bleed in some of these younger guys and some of their cup games and bringing in the, the likes of Jones and um, uh, uh, Harry, uh, I'm forgetting his last name, um, younger guy that, that's like 16, 17, that, that played in a lot of their FA Cup this year uh, matches and, and several others. Trent Alexander-Arnold came into the team young a few seasons ago. Uh, and, and they've been able to kind of mesh them in. So this idea of bringing in young talent and getting them exposed, I think is we need more of that in American soccer uh, to, to, to really develop players. I, I'm excited about that part of your plan. Uh, in terms of the club and location, uh, do, do you guys have an idea what part of the city? You got five boroughs there in New York. Uh, it's my favorite city on earth. You have an incredible name where are you looking at in terms of uh, the, the, the geography in and around uh, New York? Yeah, so obviously real estate in New York is always a, a big challenge. And, you know, we want to provide access um, via public transport. So right now we're in discussions with Fordham University. Um, they're located in the Bronx. They have a pretty easy, you know, 20-minute train ride direct from midtown Manhattan. So we definitely like that. They have the facilities, right? They have, you know, enough stands. Manhattan is tricky. Um, the Cosmos are looking to come into Manhattan, which would be cool because it'll be a tight rivalry. Um, but we'll mainly play our games out of the Bronx and then we'll train probably upper Manhattan or the Bronx as well. Um, again, we're going to attract players, you know, mainly local guys. That's an emphasis that, you know, I want to stay true to. 
Um, so I think, you know, m making it accessible for, for everyday stuff for these guys is, is going to be critical. The, the city is, is, like I said, it's my favorite city. It's a cool city. Your name, New Amsterdam Football Club. Uh, I'm just curious, as you guys were, you know, dreaming, talking about the idea of a project, who came up with the name and, and like, where, wh what was the origin of that? Like, it, it, to me, it was a no-brainer. Like, when I saw the name, I was like, this is going to be cool. I, I mean, hopefully it, uh, they don't fall on their face, but, like, that's a cool name. So. Yeah. Where, where did that come from? Uh, so I, well, I can't take credit for it, but I made the, I came up with the concept. I actually play on a, like a five against five, like local team in the city. And I have played there for years with a guy named Carlos Barguande. He actually was capped by the uh, U.S. full national team. So I got to give him a shout out. Otherwise, I think he'd break my knees with a baseball bat. Um, <clears throat> but he had the name New Amsterdam Football Club and, when, I, when we were thinking of names, there was a lot of, like, the Bronx FC. They wanted to be very borough-specific, um, but I wanted it to be more like a European club laying on, you know, old-world foundations, um, things like that. And then it just kind of clicked, let's just go with that. Um, and we were a little worried um, because it wasn't tied directly. We didn't know if people made, made the connection. But then when the logo came out and the ship and stuff, we were like, ah, this is, this is the one. People are going to love this. And I don't mean to, you know, throw my, my fellow New York clubs under the bus, but I don't think they did a killer job with their branding or their marketing. So I think, you know, we had New York was ripe for a cool, hip, urban soccer team. And I think we addressed just that between our logo and our branding. And our fans will see that. Yeah, look, between the, the two clubs in NISA, you and the Cosmos, you guys have the two best uh, New York uh, soccer football uh, you know, icons, logos, branding. Uh, so, so not bad for the league. I think it's, uh, it's great too, that you've got two clubs. Uh, I'm a big proponent, especially right now in American soccer that we need to encourage more local rivalries. Um, and it, it's something that uh, I've talked to many people behind the scenes about this concept of going around. And if you're going to put or find a club to, to launch, try to find, and a partner somewhat close to build a little bit of local rivalry as you guys have been talking through the launch of new Amsterdam football club, how much has this idea that, you know, you've got this, this, this legacy brand, uh, the New York Cosmos as, as part of your local rivalry set up to come into the league. Yeah. Uh, we initially, when we put the plan in place for a NISA club, we looked at other places. We looked in Florida. We looked in Connecticut as well. But but Cosmos and Cosmos wasn't um, admitted yet. They weren't announced yet, so we actually didn't know. And then when they were announced, it was like, all right, like this could stir up for some really cool things. I I'm a Dortmund fan myself, and like you know anybody in my family would tell you like the most important game of the year is Dortmund Schalke. Like anything else could go down the drain so long as you win that game like times are good so growing up around those kind of derbies I, I realized like man that that's the biggest thing that's what the fans get up for especially in a market where you know realistically we're not expecting in our first year our fans to come out west midweek when we play Oakland Roots so those home games where they can travel you know 15 minutes to Columbia or wherever it is 
that Cosmos does end up playing, like those are going to be the big ones, the traveling support, the derbies. And I think, you know, that's what you get am for. That's what these fans live for. And they've been craving, I think, for, for years now. Back to the development angle, how important is it to have that kind of raucous, emotional, passionate uh, environment for a young player in their development? Yeah, I mean, it, it goes back to my, to my earlier point. It's like the, the sooner you can make those experience in your development cycle, the better, right? When you can process that at 17, which is, again, a tough pill to swallow, but then it becomes the norm, right? We're not, if the kid has a horrible performance, we're not going to cut him or get right. We just understand that it's a learning experience and they get the next one and we have to be patient with it, right? I still think we're going to be a competitive team, but I think for a 17-year-old kid that, you know, is used to playing, uh, you know, a no-name game up in Connecticut, let's say on a Sunday, playing Friday night against the Cosmos in front of a couple thousand fans, it's, that's a different animal. And in its entirety. And I think that's it. I think it's a good experience. I think it's a growing experience. Looking at uh, philosophy, you know, you're talking about developing players and you being the sporting director for the club and the project. What, what kind of identity do you hope that new Amsterdam football club has on the field? Uh, I would say it's we want to stay true to a, a modern attacking style, right? I don't think we're going to develop players if we're just teaching them to to kick it long every time pressure comes. Um, when I saw I saw a couple of Nisa, I saw the championship uh, as well as a couple of games, regular season games, and they stayed true to that as well. They kept the ball on the ground. They looked to play. It was direct at times, and I understand that. Um, but our identity is again, we want to develop high-paced attacking style football that you know puts a show on for the fans um, but also develops players the right way so that they can go into another system quite seamlessly Uh, I think that's that's going to be a big big importance to keep that from the youth academy all the way up to keep that club identity New York's a big animal Manhattan's huge I mean every people think of New York they just think of Manhattan and they often forget about you know the four other boroughs but it, it's a massive city. It's our biggest city in this country. And it's, it's obviously one of the icon cities of the world. Uh, how important is it for you guys as you're planning your launch and going in to, to really building this, this brand and identity as an organization to really get into New York and really establish the brand of New Amsterdam Football Club in the city? Yeah. I think it's uh, a ton of small initiatives that add up in the long run um, from on the field to fan experience. So, so for example, on the field, I would be shocked, right? If our roster didn't consist of 80% local guys, right? And I think that in itself, if it's a, you know, a coach of a team or if it's a guy who you've seen play at the park during the off season, but who's still at a high level, right? It's a guy that you can connect with a little more than, let's say, you know, a journeyman who's in his early 30s that's, you know, playing seven different MLS teams, which, you know, may be impressive as well. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. And I don't doubt him as a footballer, but you want to create those connections where, you know, yeah, you are a little awestruck, but it's also a guy who's in the community, a guy who's not that distant. So if I'm you know, a nine-year-old kid living in the Bronx, like, I see a pathway. It makes sense to me. My brain can process it. He grew up here, he lives here, and he plays there. Like, 
I can do this. This is not some foreign concept uh, that I think a lot of youth players struggle with. So I think that is to kind of get the community, <coughs> excuse me, the younger fan involved. And then for the older fan, I think we want to do local things, right? We want to have local food vendors, local craft beer. Um, my personal dream is to have the halal guys, which is like the famous halal cart, to get them having the halal cart, among other things, at our uh, tailgate party or stuff like that, that I think gives it that urban vibe, that gives it that New York City feel. Craft brewery, we've talked to Brooklyn Brewery as well um, about setting up, you know, kind of initiatives as well. Uh, just to keep it, keep it honest, keep it real. I think New Yorkers are the, it's such a tough market because they'll call bullshit on anything. Um, and I think just staying honest with ourselves and why we built this club, people will, that message will come through pretty organically. There's not a lot of brands, organizations, clubs in the sporting arena in America that really taps in, I think, in a very like authentic, like this is who we are. This is where we're from. I think the Oakland Roots did a fabulous job uh, with their launch and their branding and kind of building the identity of their club out in Oakland. Uh, obviously, we know the stories that coming out of the NPSL into Nisa now with Detroit City, Chattanooga, both, I think, clubs really representative of where they're from. Um, but those stories have not been uh, duplicated all over the place. Um, you know, in... in uh, when you look at uh, the Cosmos, because of that legacy brand and, and kind of this, you know, uh, icon global, uh, you know, past of the NASL and Pele and, and, and all of the, the, the famous, uh, you know, uh, names and, and, and players that have been associated with that club, it feels like, you know, a big uh, brand, e even globally, like people have heard of or know about the, the cosmos and, and a lot of that has to do with that, that deep legacy that goes back decades. Uh, obviously in recent past, they they've not uh, been able to kind of get back that glory and really retain or resume and uh, where they want to be. Um, I, although I know, you know, Rocco and, and, and the rest of, of New York cosmos uh, organization work for that and dream of that and want to build that you guys coming in, being, you know, a, a new team, uh, a new club, uh, what are you, what are you hoping a, a new Amsterdam football club supporter, what, what are you, what are you wanting them to feel and experience that, that they know, like, this is my club. Like you can have the Cosmos, you can have NYCFC or any other, you know, uh, soccer related organization like New Amsterdam Football Club is me. I am them. They, they are me. Obviously, those are the hardcore supporters that you want and that you look for. What are you hoping they feel when they interact and, and get to know and come to your matches? Yeah. F first of all, I'm a little upset that Beckenbauer didn't come up when you were naming all those Cosmos traits. <laughs> He's there. He's there. I'll let that There's so off. many. I, I, I knew once I opened the bag, right? It was going to be like, oh, crap. I left this guy off, this guy off. So, so I just stopped at Pele since he's in the conversation for greatest of all time, and I just decided to stop there. But, 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 but go on. Fair enough. Um, I think we want to – I think clubs uh, – fans will identify with us um, because at the heart of it, we will be a working man's club. 
right? We're not going to pay guys astronomical wages. Um, it's not going to be something distant. It's going to be honest. We're going to expect our players to give everything on the field, every game, every training session. I think that will come through. Um, so for an NAFC fan, I think it's something they can relate to. It's, it's, you know, it's a working man's club. It's the everyday struggle that, you know, these guys have to get up and get to work the same day, the same way you guys do. It's not some different parallel universe with, you know, Ferraris and Corvettes. This is, they go through real life the same way. Um, and I think that gives the fan at least something to be on the same wavelength with that it, that it is a working men's club. And I, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, I don't think there are many, if at all, real like working men's clubs in the United States because it's just developed as not a blue collar sport. It's always been a white collar sport. And I think we're somewhat changing that in that we welcome everybody. We don't care where they're from. And I think that's a New York value that from our roster to our fans, it doesn't matter what walk of life, you know, you come from what your income is, what your background is at New Amsterdam, you're welcome. And, and the football is, you know, our common denominator that, that binds us together. In terms of getting players overseas, uh, you, you've talked about that being something that you, you want to do, a priority for you. If a player, if a younger player who, who's like, hey, I, I want to I try to, to give it a go. I'm a, you know, I'm a young kid in the Bronx. I'm in, you know, I'm in Brooklyn. I'm in, I'm in Queens. I, I, and I, I want to give it a go. And, and, and I want to find out more information about you guys in AFC and, 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 and what the next step prospects are in terms of like playing for you guys. And then what, what can you do for me? Where could I kind of go? Where, where do you guys look to be able to get players into in terms of opportunities over in Europe? Yeah, that's probably our, our strongest point. And I think the strongest reason why we can attract youth players. Um, I've been doing it now through the foosball project. It's called, um, for the better half of five years. And that's all we do. We, we take overlooked players and we bring them into clubs into Europe. Um, and by clubs into Europe, it can range from anywhere. We've, got, we've gotten guys into Schalke, which is a Bundesliga club, highest level. We've got guys into fourth league Germany, and they can make a living there. We've gotten guys into second league Sweden, first league Belgium, first league France. So the contacts are there. That's all I've been doing for the past four years, right? I haven't been coaching. I haven't been occupying my time with other things. We've strictly been helping open doors for youth players as well as men's players. And we've landed over 60 players, U.S. players over 18 on trial at, at clubs, including in the U.S., but all over Europe um, to a variety of, you know, levels, including the highest level um, and then down to the eighth division. Guys just want an experience. They, get, they think they can make their way up there. And I'm not going to be the one that tell them, tells them they can't. I'll open the door for them and the rest is on them. So I think that's our biggest bread and butter is that we can just get, we have the contacts. I've established them over the past three, four years um, so that we can get, you know, a guy into a club on a trial within 48 hours. You know, I think that's, that's the beauty of it. So especially when, you know, if we want to send a guy out on loan for four months to get experience in a different country, because we think he has some growing up to do, we can do that. We have the ability to do that quite seamless. When you guys looked at this, you, you talked about you had gone to London and ex experimented with a, with a, a, you know, a launch there and a process there and then decided to come back and do this with NISA. What about NISA 
uh, intrigued you and, and ultimately led you guys to pull the trigger? Uh, I think a couple of things. I like the calendar, right? A lot of our work is going in conjunction with European leagues. So the calendar makes the transfer windows a lot easier. That's my selfish reasoning. Um, I think the lack of high entry freeze, right? They want you to, you know, take your financials, which have to be very thorough, I will say, but they want that to go into the club, into growing the club and not pumping all your money into the league and then struggling to put, you know, a, a quality side out. So I think those two components and just some of the other clubs, like we idolize and that's our blueprint in terms of like the fan experience. You mentioned Oakland Roots, Detroit City, Chattanooga, even Cosmos, you know, they know what they're doing. They're tapping into this independent marketplace um, that I think is ever growing. And I think, you know, the evidence is there that a lot of them are packing their stadiums. And I think people want something different. They want a different experience. They watch these European games and on TV. And this may be somewhat closer to, you know, the team you see um, on the weekend on TV, maybe when Chelsea plays a cup game against the lower league team. Maybe this is that team you can identify with that doesn't ostracize you. you you have some sort of you know connection with that's it's indescribable as a fan last question here for everybody that's watching this uh how can they find out more information about you guys and and connect with you guys and, and you know follow your journey and your story yeah so traditional so media uh, Facebook Instagram Twitter our website should be up in the next two weeks we're actually um, releasing a little teaser video in the coming days on our Instagram page I would say Instagram is the heaviest especially I mean it pushes it all to Facebook but Instagram Facebook are the two ton of content we want to be really do a lot of day in life stuff so you can really follow the development of the club uh from you know nothing just an idea on a back into you know a, a, a pro club in in the greatest city in the world so social media is going to be the uh the track and what what's the user handle there that is new at New Amsterdam Football Club. All right. All spelled at New Amsterdam Football Club. Uh, yeah. Keep it awesome. Up. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thanks, Max, for joining us and on the show, doing this interview. And I know a lot of people are have been talking about uh, the possibility of a club. It's been rumored for a while. I talked to people behind the scenes. About this idea of a new Amsterdam football club project being launched. So, best of luck to you guys as you get closer to hopefully this all pandemic, you know, settling down and, and getting onto the field and, and being able to really fully launch everything. I'd love to have you guys on to talk more about where you're at in the process and, and, uh, and, and maybe even the, you know, experience of where you guys are. So uh, th thanks for, for doing this, for coming on the show. And 
like I said, best of luck forward. For sure. Let's do it. Thank you. Thank you. should ever have to drink green water with bugs, with algae, with disease in it. Bad water and a lack of toilets kills more people than all the wars in the world. We know how to bring clean drinking water right now to every single person on earth. And when you can bring water into communities, it truly transforms them, it changes everything. You could know you made a difference. You could know that you had truly impacted the life of a family, of a community, of a region. There was either clean water or there wasn't. We believe in a world where every single person has clean and safe water to drink, and we will continue fighting until that happens. for uh, tuning in today appreciate it uh, really appreciate max uh, spending some time with us uh, from new amsterdam football club uh, i'm really looking forward to seeing how that rivalry with the new york cosmos takes shape in nisa and i just think it's going to be a fascinating project to follow uh, where they're looking to kind of base out of the bronx and uh, and, and and i think it's going to be uh, a lot of fun in in the name is this cool uh, new york is the greatest city on earth i don't care you can at me you can come at me you can disagree with me but you are simply wrong it is my favorite city on earth i think it's the best city in the world and um one of the, the cities that is also in my favorites list is amsterdam in the netherlands the original amsterdam and uh, to, to kind of hear about the project that they're doing and, and kind of trying to link players up with Europe. I, I just, I really felt like it was uh, really cool and, and, and glad that we were able to get Max on to talk about uh, NAFC and, uh, and their new club and their project uh, joining NISA. Um, in, in terms of the show, you know, we opened the show and we kind of went over a letter from one of our viewers that asked to be uh, to remain anonymous, and I and I completely understand why uh, because of the the landscape and the culture within U.S. soccer. It's it's vindictive. Uh, it is punitive if you speak out or speak up. I have seen people lose their jobs over you know freely speaking their mind, and, and sometimes it's not. Uh, it's not derogatory, the things they're saying. It just may be against what people want to hear or what people want 
other people to know. Uh, even if it, it means what's best for the game, people don't want it said. And it's sad. Um, yesterday, Robson Borba, a listener of the show, sent out a tweet thread and, and uh, sent it to me to, to, to read it and, and uh, get my thoughts on it. And I wanted to share a little bit of what he had to say. Uh, picking up a little bit, kind of uh, some of the culture stuff uh, that was uh, I- included in the letter that we talked about earlier in the show. This is from Robson Borba talking about uh, Jan Quoto, a 17-year-old just signed with Man City for $6 million. He will be the most expensive player my hometown club, Cortaba, has sold. Rafinha second to Schalke at €5 million. Euros. In contrast to player development in the U.S., the U.S. Soccer Federation just announced that it has shut down its development academy. Now, giving MLS all the responsibility of youth development in the country with with elite youth competition. First of all, I agree in the closing of the DA. After all, it has never been the responsibility of a federation to develop players. That belongs to clubs. And I absolutely agree. I don't think the Federation should be developing players. I do believe that the Federation has a responsibility to administer competitions, to oversee the administration and organization of a fair, open, and accessible system of connected leagues. I do believe that is the Federation's job and duty. I I don't believe it is the Federation's job to actually take on the development of players. There should not be a standardized U.S. soccer way that you have to develop as a player. Let that spice and flavor come in all sorts of backgrounds from all over the country in all different organizations and clubs. Let them handle the development of their players. Let areas of the country who, who may be because of growing up in Wyoming, they focus more on small-sided and futsal, and so their players maybe have a different way of playing than some other players. But let every area of the country and every club in the country handle development that that's that's my thought i agree with robson in that like the u.s brazil is a really large country actually bigger if it wasn't for alaska so if one were to think of a program to develop young soccer players it it could be very overwhelming yet our yes our soccer culture plays a huge factor in this matter but let me tell you if brazil were to depend to depend on parents paying elite fees for their kids to play in elite clubs so they can become professionals We would be as relevant in football and soccer as we are in ice hockey. Cordoba FC last season was grinding in Brazil's second division after too many years dancing on the ledge of relegation. Our club right now is a minnow in Brazil. In the same city, there's Atletico uh, Paranaense, and I'm probably butchering this, so Robson, feel free to... Shout me down on this. Copa do, do Brasil champions and Copa Sudamericana champions, equivalent to the Europa League. But through our struggles being relegated, it is not the end of the club. The Federation's job is to ensure that clubs have a chance to compete, develop players, and be compensated for their work and investment. And if they are presenting good quality on the pitch, they can earn a spot in the big dance. This formula of open markets in soccer is used worldwide. This is 
the main reason why poor countries in South America and Africa are developing players to elite clubs in Europe. In American soccer, it is not connected to every state, not a fair open competition. It's not a, it is a market that is closed and manipulated by a certain number of team owners where they control the federation, closing the doors to any in-house competition. Look how terribly marketed uh, the, the U.S. Open Cup has been, the oldest soccer competition in the U.S. U.S. soccer needs to be a federation that nurtures the game as a whole and understand that a country this size with this potential It's vital to involve every town, no matter the size. If they have the ambition and can can produce quality on the pitch, a fair opportunity to to compete by merit, as it's stated in FIFA's rulebook. Only then will we see clubs all over the country developing true pro soccer players, regardless of parents' financial situation, just like poor countries do it all over the world. Guys, this isn't rocket science. Small clubs in lower divisions are vital to player development and they can only exist if they are connected to the country's first division. Otherwise, they would fold for the lack of investment and interest. Here in the U.S. here in, in the U.S. Uh, is a clear example. So much that our now deceased second division, he's speaking of the NASL, is suing the U.S. Soccer Federation. This closed market leaves soccer clubs to survive only by parents' fees and youth tournaments, never fielding a pro first team. And if they depend solely on parents' money, it explains why our poor urban and rural kids are being left out. This is why we are still a sleeping giant in the world of soccer. I couldn't agree more. I couldn't agree more. I've talked about this on the show recently, and I, and I want to. I just want to say this in in commenting on Robson's uh, post. If you are a family and you are paying money into a club, what are you getting for it? What are you getting for it? If you pay a thousand dollars a year. If you're paying $2,000 a year, $3,000 a year, what are you getting for it? Paying that amount of money for programming, when we look at how the game is administered around the world, is crazy. It's crazy. So what should we be doing? What, what should that money do? If we're going to ask people to pay in, that amount of money, it should go beyond programming. There should be ownership. There should be membership. There should be influence, voting rights, a say. We've shown in this country that that people want to invest in the game. They're willing to invest in their own kids and pay thousands of dollars and drive hundreds of miles and get on airplanes and stay in hotels. They are willing to do this for their kids. They're willing to do this for the game. So much so that it is a larger 
soccer economy than German Germany's first division professional league. It's a big deal. There's a lot of money here. Billions with a B dollars here. But it's not getting redirected in the right ways into the game. You have a family that invests three, four, five thousand dollars and you scholarship another kid and that kid takes their kid's spot, their money's gone. Why? Because they were paying for programming and you didn't get it to them. You took their money and gave it to somebody else. Don't tell me that doesn't happen. It happens all the time. So if we're going to go to a family and say, look, it's going to be 3000 to pay and we are going to scholarship some kids, but it's not just for programming. Here's a share in the club. Here's your member due and here's your vote. You're now an owner in our club. We're in this together. And maybe their kid doesn't make it. Maybe their kid's just not good enough. Whatever. It may happen. It likely will happen. But that family may own, what, 1%, a half a percent in a club? It's something they could be still proud of. Supporters of the club. Invest it for life. Becoming generational families married into the vision of the club and the community that outlasts the three, four, five, six, eight years that their kids would paid for programming. We've got to do a rethink of how we do this game in this sport, the, the game and the sport in this country. And I appreciate Robson and I appreciate this other viewer that's sending the email. And you can do that uh, as always in a variety of ways to to reach out to us and and kind of let us know you know what's on your mind let us know kind of what you're thinking uh, what your thoughts are um, that is entirely possible to do and and the easiest way to do that is you can you can dm us uh on twitter at daniel workman you can email your questions to team at wrk.mn you can also find a a link to send us an email through the website at danielworkman.com and always you can uh, text into the show at 1-844-789-8800 Four four. Uh, that is our show for today. I appreciate uh, Max uh, doing the the interview with us the other night, and for him coming on the show. And I I appreciate these viewers, all of you who watch each and every day, uh, who who tune in each and every day, who send words of encouragement in each and every day. We read them all. We try to respond and reply to them all. We we appreciate uh, you as well. Hope you have a great day. We look forward to seeing everyone again tomorrow. Goodbye.